tonight on Farage, an exclusive GB News interview with the Prime Minister Boris Johnson from the NATO summit in Madrid. We'll be asking the question, should we still be cutting the British Army? Should we spend more on defence? We'll look at the growth of the surveillance state through electric cars. We will be joined by David Hay for Talking Pints, former boss of Leeds United Football Club and somebody who suffered an horrendous time in a prison in Dubai. All of that and more... Good evening, everyone. It is, of course, the NATO summit that's taking place in Madrid. And Boris Johnson, front and centre in many ways of it. In fact, he appears to be, in some ways, the dominant figure there, given that the American president uh, doesn't really step up to the plate, quite in the same way that Donald Trump did. Trump used to go to the NATO summits and berate them all, call them delinquent, and say that hardly any of them were paying the annual 2%. Johnson has said something similar, uh, but in somewhat more diplomatic terms than Donald Trump, he said to everybody else, look, you know, this really matters, this is important, you've got to step up to the plate. And in that, I suppose we'd say that he's showing leadership. And yet, and yet, actually, are we really stepping up to the plate? You know, Lord Dannett pointing out that during the Cold War, we had four armoured divisions there in Germany. Today, we couldn't even muster one armoured division, that the army, almost unbelievably, at this time, when the Prime Minister is talking so tough and standing so relatively tall on the world stage, is still due to be cut by a further 9,000 troops. Uh, and you can see some rumblings of discontent at home. I was fascinated by Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, talking about the so-called peace dividend. This dividend when the Berlin Wall fell. The trouble is we spent that dividend over and over and over. Wallace said, sometimes it's not about what dividend you can take out but about what investment in people and equipment you can put in. And this, I thought, was quite damning from the Defence Secretary. For too long, Defence has lived on a diet of smoke and mirrors. And there is little doubt that in getting back to the 2% figure, the 2% of GDP being spent on Defence that show that we are good boys and playing the game within NATO, we've added into that all sorts of things like ceremonial duties. Now, we do have, coming to you during the course of the next hour, an exclusive interview here at GB News conducted by Darren McCaffrey, our political editor, who has just finished sitting down with the Prime Minister in Madrid. We'll bring you that interview over the course of the next hour. But the question I want to put to you, the audience at home, is simple. Should we spend more on defence? Let me know what you think. Farage at GBNews.uk. Now, my first guest is somebody who has studied defence and defence matters and defence politics for many, many years. I think Con Coughlin, defence editor of the Daily Telegraph, we could call you a, a veteran. Um, I've been around a bit, yeah. In this area. Um, first things first, NATO itself. Obviously, this expansion of NATO is happening. The Turkish objections have been dropped. So we're going to see Finland and Sweden joining. When it comes to fair shares and people paying their way, there's been some increase from what I can see in European defence spending, but two-thirds of the NATO members are not spending the 2% on defence, and we still seem to be relying, ultimately, perhaps I'm wrong, but it seems to me, that we're relying on the Americans to bail us out if we get into trouble. Well, it's a very good point, and one of the outcomes of the NATO summit in Madrid 
is that we are going to increase, NATO is going to increase the number of combat-ready troops in Europe to protect it against Russia from 40,000 to 300,000. Mm -hmm. So, ergo, the question is, how many of those 300,000 troops will be Europeans and how many will be Americans? And, of course, the, the lion's share, as has been the case since the Cold War, will be Americans. And it, it, is, it is slightly an indictment of the Europeans that you know, the, the, the threat Russia poses is to European security in the main. And it's the Americans, again, who are being yeah. called on to do the lion's share yeah. of the protection. Yeah, and Germany, I mean, their position on all of this, bizarre, they keep Well, they're on... getting better, Nigel. Go they're on. getting better. Um, they, they are, they, they've finally given up their pacifism, which is really, in some senses, you know, I think us, a lot of people in, in Britain quite like the idea of a pacifist Germany. But Germany is right in the front line of what Russia's up to. The Germans have facilitated the rise of Putin and his military killing machine. But they're still funding it. And they're still funding it. But they have now committed to their 2%. This, you mentioned Trump and, yeah, and yeah. NATO yeah. earlier. And you know, the big, the big uh, punch-up between Chancellor Angela Merkel and Trump was over Germany's... Her point-blank refusal to meet the 2% commitment. They, they, spend, doing that. And they were spending about 1.1% at the time, yeah, I think. Yeah. Uh, and Trump was quite right in that. And, and it's not just Trump. I mean, Trump, Trump made a lot of noise about it. But this goes back to the Bush administration. Even the Obama administration mm. were getting fed up with the Europeans rising on their coattails. So the Germans now are committed to their 2%. But it's going to take an age yeah. to get them. Yeah. I mean, the German mm. army is basically training with broomsticks. So to get them as, as a proper... <laughs> and, you know, I, I've seen the Germans in action in Afghanistan. And they are not a very impressive force. I mean, I think 10% of the German deployment to Afghanistan actually left the barracks. They just stayed in the barracks right. in case someone got shot. What about us? What about us? We've got the Prime Minister, you know, and as I say, standing relatively tall at that NATO summit. There's a question about that. But we're still looking to hack back the army. Well, we're in a very difficult position, actually, Nigel. Ben Wallace has spoken out in a way that I find extraordinary for yep. the Defence Secretary. Uh, General Sir Patrick Sanders, the new boss of the armed forces in this country. Uh, there seems to be a bit, bit of a battle going on in Whitehall. There is, and I think it's quite interesting that uh, uh, General Sanders has been in the post about 10 days and he's already sort of declared war on the Prime Minister. He means business. With, with the backing of the Defence Secretary... And I got into terrible trouble with Ben Wallace because at the time they appointed the head of the armed forces back last year, I said that uh, Saunders was Ben Wallace's preferred candidate and not the head of the Navy. The head of the Navy got it and, and Ben Wallace went mad at me. So <laughs> fast forward, funny how politics works, and you find Wallace and Saunders completely in cahoots taking on Downing Street over the size of the army. Mm. Now, Boris Johnson, as you say, has, played a, has, has, has conducted himself well on the Ukraine front. He did well at G7. There was a sort of united communique of not giving in to Putin and not doing you know, back deals. And, and the same is true with NATO. But as I come back to my 300,000 troops mm. and, and what Lord Dennis has said, you know, what can we contribute to those 300,000 troops? You know, it has been a, 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 an anchor of our military policy for two decades that we will be able to deploy and sustain a division of 10,000 men. Yeah. 
we'd do about half of that today. Yeah. And, of course, there was... Now, I know the inflation figures weren't foreseen by this government, not by the Bank of England either, but, but you know, there was a manifesto commitment, wasn't there, to increase defence spending by half a percent per annum more than inflation. Well, well, yeah. well OK, <laughs> we know that's out of the window. But, I mean, where are we... You know, because NATO itself projects that our spending on defence in percentage terms will go down over the next few years. Well, see, I'm not an accountant, and my, my view, my personal view... It is not, I mean, clearly we want defence properly funded. The issue today is what we spend the money on. Now, I do not see the point of cutting the army to its lowest level since before the Napoleonic Wars at a time when everybody agrees in NATO that we need troops on the front line. It doesn't make any sense. And the problem is there is this ideological uh, commitment in Downing Street to invest in cyber technology and space technology and give up on the grunts on the ground. But as General uh, Patrick said uh, in his speech, his first speech yesterday, you can't cross a river with a cyber attack. You need to have soldiers. You need to have heavy armour. So this is the reality of the war we are fighting today. And I think we need to get real. And and I think, I personally think the argument about defence spending is a sideshow. What we really need to focus on is what kit we need, how many people we need, what we need to arm them with, and and how they're going to defeat Russia. Or any other threat that we could face at any point in the future. Well, there are many... Could be China. Could be China. Or it could be Iran, or it could be somebody completely unknown at the moment. Absolutely. Um, Conkoughlin, thank you very much indeed for coming in, joining us. Come back and see us again soon. People care about this subject. It was amazing. Philip Hammond, the former Chancellor of the Exchequer, once said, there are no votes in defence. I know for many of you sitting at home and listening to this on the radio how wrong Philip Hammond was, because defence and the state of our armed forces matters enormously to many, many millions of people in this country. Now, as you know, we are all going to have electric cars. Yes, it's happening. There'll be no more diesel or petrol cars sold after 2030. I'm not sure that's going to become a reality, but that is the ambition and the aim of this government. And it gives them a problem because fuel duty for the last financial year was £28 billion. Goodness only knows what it's going to be for this year, but clearly quite a lot more. So if we all give up on our petrol and diesel cars and we all drive electric cars, although at the moment there aren't many points to charge them, but hey, but if we were all to do that, then there's a massive black hole in the government's finances and they're thinking, how can we plug that gap? And the proposal that's being put forward is there will be a tracking device in every one of our electric cars. And I'm already astonished by the extent to which we are surveilled in this country. We're told, of course, it's all for our own good, but I I never see it actually cutting crime or making people's lives better. Is it an unacceptable loss of liberty for us to be made to have tracking devices in our car where government or ultimately commercial organisations know our every movement? I'm worried about this. Perhaps you think I'm too worried about this. I'm going to ask Stuart Room, data protection, privacy and security expert at Lawyers DWF. Stuart, I get it. They're going to miss £28 if this plan was to... I mean, I don't think it will, but if it was to fully go through. But do we have... is, Is the price of going green that we lose any sense of freedom 
as to where we can go and what we can do without the government tracking us. So uh, it's, it's a good question. I, I think the beginning of the story is the one that you were you know, bringing out in the intro, that as a society were highly surveilled Ooh. and within the Western democracies, one of the most surveilled societies. And, and the question ultimately is one of proportionality. And that's where this conversation goes, because we do have to give up our privacy rights, our civil liberties, for the benefit of society every single day of the week. So that's why the police can arrest us, for example, if we're bad, and, and, and we do not have an absolute right to privacy. But what we do have is an expectation of proportionality, you okay, see. All right, yeah. You know, in a modern age, with terrorism and all yeah. the rest of it, I knew after 9-11 that our lives were going to change, and I think we all understand there has to be some loss. Yeah. But this proposal is to track us everywhere we go so they can charge us taxes per mile of yeah, what we it, do. Exactly, and the question is, do we need to do that in order to achieve the revenue that we need? So, for example, if we're going to track a car, we have um, a chance of tying that to an individual. If we don't have any limitations on the data, we can understand where they're going around the country. Is it that we're trying to understand mileage driven or is it we could, out where they're we, going to? We could find them for speeding, couldn't we, remotely, because we're yeah, tracking yeah, where it, they're it, going. Exactly. And you I, point, mean, I mean, the level of control yeah. here is, is, is... I think it's disturbing. Do you? So, this, this issue about you know, tracking in order to fill the... You know, the, 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 the tax void. Yeah. There's another way of doing this. They've said in the proposal that they could, you know, somehow look at odometers. So there is recognised within the proposal a less intrusive mechanism. Um, if we allow tracking of cards to happen, we need to understand exactly what data points we're taking and why they're necessary and what else they could be linked to. So, for example, you, you, know, you could link it into you know, wider road traffic offences. That would not be a proportionate response to the tax black hole. Mm. The proportionate response potentially might be that we should understand how many miles a car goes, mm. which could be looked at in a very, very different way to understanding where our journeys are. Um, it might be the case that we don't need any tracking at all to fill the tax hole. So th the job of law is to find the most proportionate outcome. Mm -hmm. And if we can achieve the filling of the black hole without tracking, then that tracking is not going to be necessary and therefore it would not be lawful, despite what we wrap around unless it. Unless government just wants to use this as a means of getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, exactly right. You know, go governments naturally expand their, their ambitions every single day of the week. Sometimes they do it with cognizance. Sometimes it's just by dint of a government behaving in a particular way. The, the issue that I think is of substance that you're pointing to yeah. is why have we got so much surveillance, mm. whether it's for that particular objective or a different objective, and who is actually having the debate? Now, what, the reason I came on this show, Nigel, and we've known each other for a while, yeah. is... The thing that disturbed me is the point that you're picking up on, is where is the debate about the overall because surveillance in society? Everybody in that building over there agrees on virtually every major issue of the day, and when it comes to government extending itself, it used to be the left in politics that wanted government extension and thought, and thought you know, that, that the big brother state will look after us from cradle to grave. And we used to have a conservative party that were vaguely libertarian in instinct yeah. and provided the counterbalance. And now it seems to, perhaps I'm wrong, 
but it seems to me the Conservative Party have now become a big state party as well. That, I think, explains no debate. I, I, I think governments generally behave in that way, regardless of colour and complexion, that they go in these directions. I think the point that you are making mm. is really significant, is when you walk around London, when you're living your life, whatever you're doing, getting on the tube, going into a restaurant, we are the most surveilled, or one of the most yeah. surveilled societies in, in Western now, has Europe. Has it cut crime? Has it made us safe? And, and there's, there's the question. Where's, where is the empirical evidence of results? And those are the kind of debates that we should be having. Is the surveillance worth the price? Is it necessary? Yeah. Or is there a less intrusive way of dealing with problems in society? I think you've hit the nail on the head. Well, Stuart Room, I've got to tell you this. They may not be debating this in the Palace of Westminster behind us over the river, but we on GB News will be debating this because we think it matters. And we understand the need for government. We understand the need in an age of potential horrendous terrorism. We understand the need for government to have power. What we don't want to do is completely surrender our freedoms if there is absolutely no benefit in return. In a moment, when we come back after the break, we'll have a look at the exchange in the House of Commons today between Angela Rayner and Dominic Raab. On this show previously, I've described Raab as Dominic, rabbit in the headlights Raab. I've always thought he was rather dull. Well, I tell you what, he wasn't today. Coming up on The Mark Stein Show, the crumbling cops after the Met Police was put into special measures following systemic failures, former Chief Superintendent Palm Sandu will be here to shine a light on whether this is the final nail in the coffin for the struggling force. Will the stories of the vaccine injured and bereaved now form part of the government inquiry into Covid? We'll be taking a closer look at the small print. Plus, the Statman is back. Jamie Jenkins will be separating the facts from the fiction and is on a mission to get all of us looking beyond the smoke and mirrors. All that and more on The Mark Stein Show tonight from 8 o'clock. It's the defence debate and I asked you, should we be cutting the British Army? Should we, in your opinion, be spending more on defence? Some reactions from you that have come in. Matt says we absolutely should spend more on defence. The threat posed by Russia and China is growing and we as a country have ignored it and hope for the best for far too long. And just add Iran to that list as well, please. Edith says yes to protect us from Russia and all of the other countries who are jealous of us. Well, that's a lovely thought in one way. Roy says if you give billions away to a lost cause, what's the point? Well, all I can say to you, Roy, it's a jolly good job. People in London didn't think that in 1940. Mark says, in the view of Putin and his ongoing aggression and threats, it's a big yes. And Theresa says, yes, we need an equipped, functioning army, navy and royal air force. Do we need to throw millions at Ukraine? No. And one or two people over the last few weeks wondering whether we're spending too much on Ukraine. That, that is a strand of thought that is out there in the country. Now, let us go now live to Madrid, to the NATO summit, and be joined by GB News's political editor, Darren McCaffrey. Darren, you've been talking to the Prime Minister today with an exclusive broadcast interview. 
Yeah, indeed, Nigel, and really fascinating, isn't it? Essentially, this big debate that has exploded away from Madrid and back home in London about defence spending, about the size of the army. We heard from the Chief of the General Staff earlier on this week, essentially saying it was perverse that the army was being cut at the time in which there was war in Europe. And also, more than just hints from the Defence Secretary and, indeed, the Foreign Secretary, that defence spending needed to go higher, maybe up to 2.5% of GDP. And what we're seeing, Nigel, essentially in government, is this real battle now between pretty much the Ministry of Defence and the Treasury, with the Treasury still calling for restraint in terms of public spending, and the Prime Minister somewhat caught in the middle and didn't seem committed on all of this at all. And so I started my interview on that point about where did he stand on the size of the army given that war in Ukraine? Did he think it was appropriate that the cuts still went ahead? As you see, he didn't really quite answer, despite my attempts. Uh, let's have a look. It's quite a long interview. We covered lots of stuff. Uh, but it starts off on this point about the size of the army and whether it's sustainable, essentially, to have it being cut at a time in which we're having to do more and more for NATO. Thank you, Prime Minister, by the way. Just, see you good, good. Just to pick up on um, our defence forces and where yes. we're at. I mean, do, do you think it's perverse to cut the army at a time in which there's war in Europe? Uh, look, we've got the, uh, the second biggest defence uh, spent in NATO. Last year, uh, 2021, we've, we were the third biggest in the world. Uh, we've, we've increased uh, our defence spending by, by 24 billion, which is the biggest amount since the end of the Cold War. What you've got to do is make sure that you're, you're, you're spending uh, on the right things that you're, you're modernising and putting us in a position to deal with the threats of the, of the 21st century. That's what we're doing. And I promise you, uh, if you, if you go around this, uh, this summit, ask, ask uh, our friend Jens Stoltenberg, uh, you know, uh, who's making a massive commitment to NATO, who's helping operationally, uh, who's uh, helping with the, the, the NATO operations and everything else. It's, it's us. But, but, but troops do still matter. Clearly, they do. Yes, it's a course. land war in Europe. We are cutting the army by another nine thousands. I mean, how, that's not sustainable, is it? I mean, surely you would want to see, uh, you, you recognise this is a really serious threat. Surely you would want to see the army increase in size. We want, we have the best uh, armed forces in, in, in Europe. We Why think not more of them? And uh, we think that they're fantastic, they're brilliant, uh, but we also we need to make sure that they're, uh, they're properly equipped with stuff that is really going to make uh, a difference for the security of the, of the UK. And, and the security of our allies. So we have to, we have to think about uh, all the things that when I, you know, people say, oh, well, why put money on into cyber? Actually, cyber is vital for the defences of our, of our continent. Uh, putting money into, uh, into, into, into drones, into surveillance, uh, all the things that the, if you go, if you go and meet the, if you go and talk to uh, the, the, the armed services uh, as I do regularly, and, and, you, and you know, go to some of the things this that they're the doing. This is the chief of the general you will, you staff who's saying it's perverse, though. You will find that they are using kit that is, uh, and they're, they're getting strategic advantage over our adversaries by the use of, uh, of kit that is absolutely vital. So we've got to put money into that as well. So, so you're suggesting that, you, that the army is not going to increase in size, it's going to continue to decrease in size? I think, that, I think that, no, I didn't say that at all, but I think our troops are a fantastic value uh, and, uh, and they do an amazing job. They're the best in the world. But the thing you've also got to remember is that advantage, military competitive advantage, is conferred on the armies, the armed forces that also have 
the best kit. And I, that's been so I, for, I don't want to tens really of hammer this home, but I just, just a really clear answer is, is the army going to get smaller in the years? No, I'm saying that we're going to keep, we're, we're investing massively in... So it's going our, to get bigger. And we're investing massively in our defences. Uh, what I want to see is, uh, is Army, Navy, Air Force mm-hmm. uh, that is, uh, that is um, s- strong, uh, sufficiently numerous, uh, but also uh, has the kit, uh, the training uh, that they need. Given the fact, though, that obviously this is largely, this war so far has involved lots and lots of actual people on the ground, our defence force has been cut, I think, from 200,000 when the Conservatives first became into government in 2010 to 150,000, fewer than 150,000 to date. Well, in retrospect, in hindsight, was that a mistake? Well, hang on, hang on. It's a very, very interesting point because uh, people say, uh, you talk about, you mean the conflict in Ukraine? Yes. Right. But uh, I think on that, you need to consider exactly what we can do uh, to be most useful to, uh, to the Ukrainians. And uh, so when it comes to... Um, helping them. Uh, it's actually been the, the, the investment in, in weapon systems, uh, in cyber, and above all in intelligence, in ISR, uh, in, in drone technology, that has been pretty important uh, in helping them uh, to resist If uh, we stand by NATO's Putin. commitment, we might need to send 30,000 extra personnel in some form or another across the Defence Force. Can we even manage that, given how small they are? Just ask Jens Stoltenberg which country steps up to the plate, which country delivers uh, for NATO. I double dare you. You know, you know the, the UK is, uh, is the country uh, that really commits to, to NATO. Uh, we've got the second biggest uh, defence spend in, in this organisation of, you know, some of the biggest defence players in the, uh, in the world. Uh, the th- we were the third biggest in the world just last year. So, okay. yeah, uh, and what we're doing, and you say, where's the money going? It's going on the, the stuff that we're going to need for the future. Um, a lot being said about Vladimir Putin in the last couple of days. We talk about toxic masculinity. The Defence Secretary's talked about kind of small man syndrome. In the end, and I, you know, is it fair to say that he, that he is evil, as uh, some has portrayed him? I think that what he has done is evil and is he I himself think evil uh, you know i think it probably follows that uh if if you you know you you, you are what you do then certainly you know he's uh it's been an appalling act of unwarranted aggression against an innocent population and it's very rare in in life in in politics in diplomacy when you see something that is so absolutely black and white something so clear and it's very interesting listening to colleagues around the table. Uh, they see it. And I think one thing we've got to make sure is that uh, parts of the world that are more ambivalent about this are helped to understand why we see it this way. And, you know, we can't be complacent about this. There are lots of, of swing countries that are, the moment, you know, just a, just a bit more ambivalent about what Putin has done. So we need to, we need to explode some myths. You know, it's not the sanctions uh, that are causing the food prices to go up, as Putin tells uh, African, uh, Asian, Latin America. It's not the sanctions. There's nothing to stop Putin exporting uh, food, exporting fertilizer. It's what he is doing to stop uh, grain coming out of Ukraine. He's blocking uh, the food. We, we need to explode that myth. And we need to, and the second thing that people say is, oh, well, it's all NATO. NATO should never have encroached upon, uh, upon Russia. There was never any chance 
uh, that uh, missiles were going to be stationed on uh, Ukrainian soil. That's a complete myth. This is an, an act of absolutely unprovoked aggression. Uh, just two other topics, um, if I can. One on, um, no worries at all, on uh, whether women have an absolute right to body, bodily autonomy, I think, which one of your MPs suggested they did not. Right. Do you agree with that? I think, I th look, I think that when it comes to, to Roe Wade, I think it's a, that's an unfortunate decision. I think it marks a, a step backwards. I've always been in favour of a woman's right to choose, and that's what we have in, in UK law, and we've actually just taken steps to make sure that uh, that's the way the law is enforced across the whole of the UK. Because I've watched all your interviews that you've given over yeah, this past just, week. Just I know, you know, it's kind of part of the job. That's, that's, you know, but sometimes I'm soulless, right? I'm yeah, just, you know, just very keen. That's called strategic endurance. Yeah. <laughs> I, can, I, 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 I congratulate on your strategic endurance. And one of the things that's really interesting is, you know, a lot of our viewers, a lot of people who watch GB News really like you. They love you and they still love you. But some of them, and increasingly... I know where this is going. This is, this is, this is, this is, this is trying, trying to drag it back in. No, I'm not. Go on, go on. But, but I'm, I'm, the reason that's really important is because actually some of them don't trust you anymore. Whether, whether you like it or not, they don't. And, and I'm interested in this, that you, you seem to be suggesting the way that you can win them back is through policy. But many of them won't listen to it anymore because they don't trust you. Can, is there no way that you can reach out and say, I want to win back people's trust? Look, uh, of, of course. But I think the way to do that. How do you do that? The way to do that to, is to um, show what we're doing. Uh, explain it, go over it again. When people find it controversial, try again. Take the Rwanda policy, right? Began by everyone saying, what, 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 you can send people to Rwanda? Uh, and then actually, uh, it went through the, uh, the court. Uh, nobody, no court ruled it unlawful. Then uh, a lot of uh, our colleagues came to, on the recent trip to, to Rwanda. They saw the country for themselves. They saw what was happening. Attitudes started to change. Uh, but probably you know, it's so, not about so your my policies. Job, my they, job is to, is to keep your policies. It, it's about you, though, as in they want you yeah. to, to well, show that, that you're changing or that you're I listening. Think, I think, you know, if I'm, with greatest respect, I think, you know, that, that's, that's where that's a job for you. Uh, I am not, that's a job. I'm, not, I, I'm not here to convince people to trust you. You should be, well, should well, not I, be, no. Look, I'm not going to try and dissuade you. Uh, look, that's, look, I, I think that the job, of, my job uh, is to try to make some very uh, tough decisions uh, to keep making them, keep taking the country forward. I think it's the job of, uh, of brilliant commentators in the, in the media uh, to, to sort of draw political conclusions and, and judgments about people's careers. That's, that, you know, that's, that's a different, that's, there's a tri there should be a, a demarcation dispute. I used to do that kind of thing. Yeah, I used to, and I, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very, it's a great thing to do. But I don't do that anymore. Right now, uh, what I do is I, uh, I get up every morning with a, an ambition to change the country for the better, to deliver on our promises, to unite and level up. It's a massive, massive agenda. Uh, that's what drives me. Okay. Prime Minister, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, very, very well done, Darren McCaffrey, for getting that interview. Um, Boris Johnson quite jolly there towards the end, clearly happier in some ways not being in the United Kingdom, it seems to me. Uh, the language um, against Putin is getting quite personal. We've had some from Ben Wallace, too. I wonder whether that actually is the wise way in which to behave. And yesterday was ZDF, the German broadcaster. Boris Johnson said if Vladimir Putin was a woman... There wouldn't have been the war because this war smacks of toxic masculinity and we need more female leaders. I don't think he was considering Pretty Patel when he made those remarks, but they were really very, very surprising. Now, with him away from the dispatch box, Dominic Raab was there today, representative of the government, and Angela Rayner led the attack 
on behalf of Her Majesty's loyal opposition. Here is how she began today. Mr Speaker, this week the government lost two by-elections in one day, the first in three decades. It's no wonder that the Prime Minister has fled the country and left <laughs> the Honourable Member to carry the can. The people of... <laughs> well, I thought that was quite spirited. Whatever you think of Angela Rayner, she is quite spirited. A lot more exciting than Keir Starmer being there. And then, my what the Farage moment, Dominic Raab, who I've called before, this rabbit in the headlights, and I thought very boring. But here was his response. Very interesting. Asked by the BBC, straight question. She's normally a straight-shooting uh, politician. Do you like the RMT? She said, I'm going to have to go now. I've got a train to catch. <laughs> Working people. She talks about working people. <laughs> well, that was really very funny as well. Did you miss it at the end there? Let's just show that last two seconds again. She talks about working people. I mean, the, the wink across the dispatch box, I mean, you couldn't make it up. Great stuff. We need more humour in our lives, I think. In a moment, I'll be joined on Talking Pints by David Hay, somebody who was the boss of Leeds United Football Club, who suffered an horrendous time in a jail in Dubai. He's now a human rights lawyer. We'll talk about his life. I'll also ask him what he makes of the European Court of Human Rights. It's time for Talking Pints. I'm joined by David Hay, who's got quite a story to tell. But, David, welcome to the programme. Very good to see Cheers. you. But your story begins in Cornwall, right down the end of the peninsula. It, it, it does, where I came from, I came from today, um, up, on the, up on the train from Penzance. I mean, I, I grew up down there. I mean, yeah, I just... Grew up down there, school grew up down, down there. there. School down there. The first and last school in, in England, depending on which way you go. Um, and now I spend you know, a lot of my time down there. It's, it's a wonderful place. It's Ma a wonderful amazing. place. I've been going for years. I love it. Uh, I like going there to catch fish, you know, sharks, tuna, you name it. I love the place. But it's got too popular. And the money, I mean, I know Padstow pretty well. The money's flooded in. In the winter, there are no shops open in the town. It's, you know, you've got to go to the main supermarket up the hill. Um, property's unaffordable. Um, where does Cornwall go from here? Well, I mean, that, it's a real problem. I and mean, the G7 made it even worse because people all around the world then saw how that was beautiful, Bay, wasn't it? Yeah. beautiful Cornwall yeah. was. But I mean, I grew up down there and people I went to school with, normal jobs, just cannot afford houses. You know, you're looking at, say, like a three bedroom semi detached house, three, four hundred thousand pounds. If you work in a farm or a supermarket or a fisherman, you've got no chance. And those are just going up and up and up. And the village that I live in, you know, there's no shops anymore. The pub doesn't open anymore. All the houses next to mine are holiday lets. There's no community. There's no village. Everything gets destroyed. It, uh, completely. London money. Yeah. And they love it because they come for a few weeks a year and they can surf on the beaches and do all the great things. So what do we do? I think that that's the difficult thing. That's where, where do you go from there? I mean, I think, you know, you can look at restrictions on housing. Uh, housing is one of the big things, particularly for my friends that I grew up with yeah. down there. They can't get on the housing ladder at all. Um, and, and so that's the big thing. Jobs also. And there's, a, there's very much a brain drain. You know, I mean, like I did when I got to 18, 
I left as soon as I could because there's no industry. And you became a lawyer and yeah. you went into that profession. Now, it is very difficult. Well, all I can think, David, is I think Mevagizzi have a good, pro- good project where they've built a little bit out of the village, but they've built some affordable housing for sale to local people. And I think that's what's going to have to happen. I think if, you know, Michael Gove starts super taxing second homes, that's kind of so socialist. I, I'm not really sure they can do it. But how does a Cornish lad who goes off to get qualified and goes into law... How does he get involved with and become the boss of Leeds United Football Club? How does that work? That is, that it's a very strange tale via Dubai and, and, and Bahrain. And, and to cut a very long story short, I worked for an Islamic bank. Um, and the Islamic bank um, basically wanted to get into British sport. Um, like you see, a lot of the Gulf countries effectively buying up British sports, sports washing, that kind of thing. Um, and I was a lawyer work, working for them. Um, and at the time... Well, the I was, Saudis are doing this in a huge way. Exactly. Right? Saudis, huge you see Qatar, the UAE, or something. Yeah, yeah. you name it. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's effectively sports washing. And that's effectively the, the organisation that I work for, what they needed to do, because they, they wanted to kind of repair their reputation after the big crash in, in, in 2008. So they looked at Leeds United, ultimately purchased it, um, and then realised that it wouldn't be very popular with an Islamic bank owning a British football club with various things they want to do, for instance, banning alcohol, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so no, they, that doesn't really go no, very well. No, not with Leeds, not with Leeds. <laughs> so they needed, they needed some, basically, you know, English, English chap from Cornwall to go and, to go and run it. Because it right. you know, so I was effectively the, the face of it for them. Um, and knew nothing about football at the time, completely thrown into it at the time. And football politics is horrendous. Well, Ken Bates was the owner. So, I mean, I'm good friends with Ken now, but um, Ken was the owner. So I had to do negotiations with Ken for nine months in Monaco to buy it, which he, as you can imagine, Ken really, really enjoyed that. Um, so in a way, I was actually lucky because of that, because Ken Bates was the owner um, and he stayed on as, as, as chairman. Um, Sean Harvey, who later became the, the CEO of the Football League, he then was the CEO of Leeds. So I had a good kind of training. And you were chairman, football. you were yeah, I was director, director, you were head and, cook and, and bottle washer and all, and all the rest of it. No, very interesting. Very. And do you still support Leeds? Yeah, no, I mean, my parents are from Leeds. Oh, so, originally? So, yeah, oh, so I it was, see. It was a nice, you know, it was I, didn't a nice, get that. I didn't get that connection. Yeah, my parents were from Leeds. I mean, they gradually moved down to Cornwall, you know, for, as far okay. as they could. Um, so I, it was a really nice experience. And, you know, I was the first. I mean, I know there's a lot about homophobia in sport at the moment and inclusivity. And, you know, that was nearly a decade ago now. And I was the first, I mean, what one would term openly gay managing director of a football club. Um, and we've obviously seen now with the footballers, um, you know, with Jake Daniels coming out, we're seeing all, all, all sorts of debates now on trans athletes as well. So it's, it's, it's interesting to see where we were 10 years ago. Yeah, I ago. think they're two slightly separate debates, yeah, actually. They, but they are, are. Yeah. We haven't got yeah, time yeah, for them yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think the trans athlete debate is more about women's rights, actually. Yeah. And, you know... David, you're, you know, you're in Dubai, you're a lawyer, you're making big money, you're doing very well, but the long arm of the law comes to get you. You're accused of embezzlement, embezzlement of a significant sum of money. Uh, you lose the case. You're there in a Dubai prison. Yeah. Do you maintain your innocence to this day? Absolutely. I mean, I was, I was accused of, I mean, just to show you how ridiculous it was, I was accused of um, what's called breach of trust. Um, where I was um, found guilty after a trial I wasn't allowed to go to, it was in Arabic, and, and what, you, what I now, I now help people that have similar experiences. But I was also jailed for nine months for Twitter abuse, of which I was found innocent of. But Twitter, I mean, that gives you an idea, a country that can put you in jail for nine months for using Twitter. So it's Twitter. all well and good with these countries, when mm. you're doing business with them and you're making money out of them and it's all going well. 
But if things turn... Yeah, that, that's, the, that's the problem with it. Someone like, for instance, one of any, and many of the countries in the Middle East, but if you look at Dubai as an example, you've probably got 90% of the people there breaking the law unknowingly 95% of the time. If, for instance, if you're a man and you live with a woman who's not your wife mm. um, and, you're, and, and not your sister and not part of your family, you're breaking the law. And people don't realise that. You know, if you have alcohol outside of one of the hotels, so if you drive from a hotel to another hotel with alcohol in your blood, you're breaking the law. Gosh. And because people don't... Well, I'm, yeah. I'm, everyone keeps telling me Dubai is a wonderful place to go, but you just put me off for good, well, that, I think. That's the problem, because it's, it's so arbitrary, and, you know, the laws are very much like Saudi. But the money's flowing in, isn't it? It, it is, it is. And, and, you know, you particularly see, you know, in the, in the last couple of years, we've seen some of the leaders of, of, of Dubai do very bad things to people in this country. We've, you know, there's been a very high-level divorce case with, with a lady called Princess Haya, you know, kidnapped daughters, all things like that. Yeah, Yet, that, we that, still, that case was extraordinary, wasn't it? Yeah, it, I mean, it was. It was something that I, I helped with. Um, and, and also with the, the, the daughter of the ruler of Dubai, a lady called Princess Latifa, who he helped who escape. Who reached some level of fame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, and, we, and she we did, did manage that. to escape. Yeah, it's a year, a year since she was released now. Right. Um, well, released within, within kind yeah. of inverted commas. So, so. What, does this, what does this tell us I think about the Islamic world, about the <laughs> Middle East? What does it tell us? I think many, many things. I think, you, you know, when you look at... Um, I think it's... I mean, where do, you, where, where do you start? I mean, my experience is that when you look at, for instance, what we know about women's rights, we've got um, two daughters that were effectively kidnapped and locked up because all they wanted to do was live a free life. We've got Princess Haya of Jordan, who was the, the, the last wife of the, of the ruler of yeah. Dubai, running to England in fear of her life and being given the largest ever payout in a divorce settlement part of which was, I think, a couple of hundred million of that was for security given to her by an English judge because they were that fearful of what could happen to her here. So that shows you there's, there's serious problems. Did you do the right thing in fronting up a big organisation to buy Leeds United Football Club? I regret now bringing them into football because now I've seen the other types of sports no, washing that go on. And Newcastle, Newcastle Saudi, you, you know, and, and Man City as well, um, and, and obviously the UAE. I mean, one of the ladies that we help, um, she's the first wife of the ruler, and she's the mother-in-law of the um, chairman of, of Man United, yeah. Man City. Um, and she's suffered similar experiences of, 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 of well, abuse you know as well. David, it takes a big man to admit that he was wrong to do it, and I, and I respect you for that. Now, in prison over there, you suffered pretty horribly. Um, you know, whatever conditions in our Victorian prisons, they're not always great, mm. uh, but you had a pretty miserable time over there in prison. How was recovery from that? You had sort of PTSD effectively after it. Yeah, I mean, I, I came back in, in... I was there for 22 months. I came back in 2016. Um, and, you know, obviously to a big media, obviously because it was in football, a huge, huge media I remember, attention. I remember it, yeah. Um, and then that died off. And then this thing creeps in, which I now know is called PTSD. Um, and I've, I've probably been... Um, I've had about six months of treatment for that in, an, in and out of hospital, because I live in Cornwall. It's difficult to get treatment down, so I come up to London. I think the thing that Prince Harry has, which is called EMDR, um, this is kind of Californian. You think it's California mumbo-jumbo where they wave <laughs> fingers in your face, but it actually works. If you, if you get does good, it? It does work if you get a good therapist. So I've had that. It still never, you know, it still never goes away from you. You know, there are still moments you, hit, you, you smell something that reminds you of living in Dubai. you physical abuse, etc. Yeah, you hear an Arabic phrase, it, it brings it back to you. But now what I do, you know, getting something positive from a negative is I help not just Princess Latifah, Princess Haya, mm. you know, and I help hundreds of Brits that get involved in these ridiculous cases where they get jailed for having a drink in a bar, you know, God forbid, in Dubai. Yeah. So that 
brings something I think <coughs> positive. So that's what I spend my time doing now, yeah. helping other people. Um, and obviously, you know, Princess Latifah was the, the, the biggest case that we've done. Yeah. Um, you know, even saw the likes of Mary Robinson admit that they make she made the worst mistake of her life when she got involved in effectively the cover up of, of, of. I mean, you're basically now a human rights campaign. Yeah, exactly. Now, so I've gone from an evil corporate lawyer to a to yeah. human rights lawyer. Yeah, 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 and a sponsor of Islamic money and British football. He uh, yeah. started. He started his yeah. football. Uh, but what interests me is this about the whole thing. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of... This country... I'm off to Lincoln tomorrow. I'm going to see a copy of the Magna Carta. It's on loan to Fantastic. them. I'm going to have a look at an original copy of the 1215 Magna Carta. Now, the circumstances of it were extraordinary. They sort of said to King John, sign this or we'll, you know, you won't be here tomorrow. <laughs> but he did <laughs> sign it. And with that began something. We'd, we'd, we'd learned a lot from the Romans about the principles and concept of common law. And we took it on. And I was brought up to believe that we're born as free people. And only if there's a law prohibiting things, uh, do we not do something? And the opposite of that, of course, is state-given rights, mm. which in emergencies can be taken away at any moment. And it brings me to an interesting debate with you about the ECHR, the European Convention on Human Rights, the European Court of Human Rights, written into British law via the Human Rights Act of 1998. And I am campaigning actively for us to leave that court, because I don't believe we need judges in Strasbourg to ensure fairness in our country. As a human rights campaigner, what say you? I think where we are now, with, with obviously the Human Rights Act going, a, a new Bill of Rights, as it's, it's termed, yeah. coming, um, and, and with, with Brexit, I think it's a, it's a huge mess for human rights, for, for all parties involved, because no one quite knows where we are now. Um, and, and where do we need to get to? I think in, in, a, in a perfect world, which we're not in, um, and with the right leaders, which we don't have, um, you know, I think it would be ideal for us to be a standalone country and not be party to any other organisations. For instance, the ECHR. So you're a Brexiteer by instinct? At, at the beginning, yeah. But yeah. I, the problem that I have is that the leaders that we have at the moment, as, as you would say, they're not getting Brexit done. We've, we've got a complete mess. That's why we're having a drink. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know what, where you are from a human, where we are from a human rights perspective. You know, we've got one foot now in the ECHR and potentially one foot out. So they're, they're relevant, but they're not. How's that going to work? It, 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 it's just adding a whole new layer of confusion, which benefits nobody. You know, if we had fantastic leaders that had conviction, you know, like in the past when you look at the likes but of But you Matcha, were chairman of various Tory party organisations in the Middle East. No, no I, I, no, I was, and I was on the candidates list, so... Yeah. Should, should Boris stay or should he go? There isn't anyone else I can see at the moment. That's so the you'd problem. stick with him? You'd stick with him? I'd rather he go, but there's no one else, so I'd stick with him. I think it's a bigger gamble to stick with him. I think it's better to gamble and find yeah. who comes there. David, I could talk to you for hours. It's a fascinating story. I know you've been through a lot of considerable personal pain through it, but the fact you're now using that to help others is commendable, and thank you Pleasure. for joining me. Cheers. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Bye. It is time now for Barrage the Farage. Let's see what we have tonight. One viewer asks... If Southgate and the FA <laughs> and the FA love virtue signalling so much, why haven't they boycotted the Qatar World Cup given their horrific human rights record? Thirty seconds. 
Well, actually, I think, you know, not wanting to defend Qatar, but they, they are actually making advances to improve their human rights. So you do see small changes in rights there, which is one of the good things when you give sports to countries that are somewhat behind others, that you can see sport having a positive Would change. Would be quite funny if we took the knee in Qatar, wouldn't it? I mean, <laughs> very, very strange. And potentially thing. dangerous. <laughs> but, 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 I mean, yeah, I mean it, it, it's an odd one, isn't it? It, it, it is. Um, but, you know, I think it's, 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 there is positives in having the World Cup in the Middle East, I think. All right, there we are. David making the case for us being in Qatar. It could have a reforming influence. We'll see. Mick asks me, Biden is beefing up US forces in Europe. Good news or bad? Oh, Mick, I mean, look, I worry slightly that the language about Putin is getting very personal and very direct, because if he has lost the rational function, that puts us in a potentially more dangerous place than we need to be. But... If America is back engaged, having effectively walked away from everything in Afghanistan last year, I think that's a good thing. I believe that the world is a better and safer place, particularly when the United Kingdom and America are close and working together with each other for the values of democracy, liberty and freedom. Now, sometimes what we've done in the name of that has been wrong. I think some of the wars in the Middle East were misguided. But in general terms, in general terms, if America is back engaged with us and Europe, I believe that to be a good thing. Because goodness knows what threats we face in the future. And I'm not just talking Vladimir Putin. I am done for today. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Here at GB News, the People's Channel.